developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. As salespeople, our job isn't to sell. It is to give our customers value. And if we can give our customers value, then it's going to, they're going to be happy. Our teams are going to be happy. You know, our product's going to grow. Our team is going to grow. Our revenues are going to grow. This is the Sales Babble Podcast, episode 283, Sassy Selling for SaaS Sellers, an interview with Bill Wilson. Welcome to Sales Babble, the podcast that shares selling secrets for non-sellers. And now your host, Pat Helmers. Hello, sales babblers. This is Pat Helmers. And if you're a first-time listener, this is the podcast that shares selling secrets for non-sellers. We're talking tactics and strategies and things that can help you become successful in sales and love it. Today, our guest is Bill Wilson. Bill is a B2B SaaS CEO from a company called SalesRight. SaaS is software as a service. And I really want to emphasize the word service because it's applicable beyond software. This kind of sales is client-based. It's all about building clients for life, not customer-based, which is a one-and-done situation. The thing that we're looking for is renewals, upsells, references, and referrals. In this episode, Bill's going to share five contents to embrace when selling. Now make sure and listen all the way to the end because we're going to get a bit of advice from Bart Simpson on what bad selling is all about. So with no further ado, let's get to it. Welcome, Bill. Are you ready to babble? Yes, sir. You're a SaaS expert. (laughs) (laughs) I was really excited that you... uh, we were, we were chatting earlier before and that you knew a lot about SaaS software as a service. And that means a lot to me because I come from that too. It's amazing. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing field and uh, growing and growing and growing. I think I saw a statistic recently saying that the SaaS market is going to be something like 76 billion by 2020 or something like that. So by far, almost all software in the world these days is being sold on a subscription model. Why do you like SaaS? Uh, for me, it is the... I mean, it's, it's being able to add a ton of value, um, you know, incrementally as you go, uh, you can get, uh, you know, you can get a lot of people interested in uh, a particular problem and niche. Like you can really niche down, uh, especially when you're talking B2B SaaS, like you can really narrow in on, on a p- particular problem, solve it, you know, find your customers, uh, and keep iterating and just keep adding value for them over time. And you can just watch it grow. Whereas, you know, if I compare that to building software 20 years ago or even 15 years ago, um, you know, we're building products and we're trying to, you know, build full products that we almost have to ship. I don't want to say on CD because I'll probably date myself too much. But, you know, you're shipping you're shipping completed products and we do a release like once a year, you know, that kind of stuff and hope that we, we nailed it with our customers. But with SaaS, like you can, you know, people are using it. It's hosted. Uh, they're using it all the time. You're constantly getting feedback. You know when they're using it. You know when they're not. Um, you know, all of those things go into just accelerating that product development and then, of course, adding value, you know, over time 
uh, much faster than we could say with packaged, you know, box software. One of the biggest objections I always got in selling SaaS was the fact that when you purchase software outright, it's, it's, it's a one and done thing. You own that software and you own it forever and you might buy maintenance on it. Right. And, mm-hmm. um, I mean, and over time, you might let it lapse, but you still have it. That's not the case with SaaS. No, not at all. And I mean, I think this has been the biggest shift over time. And thankfully, with B2C, you know, business to consumer SaaS, um, many, many, many people now are very accustomed to the model. I can even remember um, back in 2011 and 12 when, you know, Apple's App Store was just kicking off and apps were really popular you know, the only, there was not, not even, you couldn't even do subscriptions for apps. And now if you look at apps, for example, most of those are sold on a subscription basis. You know, you're paying either for in-app purchases or you're paying, you know, monthly for it. Um, Netflix, you know, all of these types of software that people are used to using uh, have become uh, to the point now where it's all subscription based. And then it sort of leaks into, um, and then of course, you know, cross the chasm easily to B2B. Um, but I remember buying Microsoft Word the first time on subscription and being a little bit shocked, you know, <laughs> like this is a product I'm used to buying on a, on, you know, a download basis or on a CD, you know, you pay for it once and I'm going to use that version for a while. And now I pay 10 bucks a month for it, you know, and I, I think the shift really comes into just knowing that you never have to worry about it. You're always paying for it, but you're never paying that, you know, outlandish fee up front. And I think that was sort of the big shift that everybody had to get behind, um, like I remember like Photoshop is a perfect example. I mean, how much did Photoshop used to cost in the like late nineties? Like, I don't know, 800 bucks or something. Um, and now you can get it for like $19 a month, um, and use it for when you need it and always have the latest version. It says here that you, you have developed apps in the past. I was looking at your bio here for, and you had some customers, Dallas morning news, national post. What kinds Uh of things have you been building? What kind of apps have you been building? So, um, I got started in the mobile app space many years ago. I used to write uh, software um, for uh, Windows CE devices and Blackberries. And oh, I remember I had one of those, a Windows CE machine. <laughs> it was like a, it was like oblong and it was small and it had like you opened it up and there's a keyboard in there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I I've been doing mobile software since like 2000 and two or three or something. I remember, um, even running software for Palm OS, you know, going that far back, but, uh, you still have uh, one of those two. <laughs> <laughs> We're dating ourselves. Pat. We're dating ourselves. <laughs> but yeah, so I, um, I started doing that and then in, um, I worked for a lot of big software companies for a long time. And then in 2007, I went out on my own, uh, with my company called MindC and I was mostly just a bum in a seat, you know, writing software for other companies. Um, but the iPhone stuff was quickly coming on and, you know, Apple had announced that they were going to be launching their app store and I really wanted to get in on that. So, um, that's how I got started. So that's how I started my first company. Um, and so up until that point I had just been a software developer. So when we started building mobile apps, uh, and honestly, this is how naive I was. I thought the ship had sailed. By the time I got into mobile apps, I was like, oh, it's 2010. You know, people are people are done with this. Like, they've, they've already got, you know, what, what else could we possibly add? Well, 
lo and behold, uh, a lot. Um, so yeah, we started working with um, really small, uh, you know, guys in their basement, and we built some great apps uh, in the photo space, all the way up to working with companies like the Dallas Morning News and uh, the Post Media in Canada, which is the National Post, Financial Post, and all their newspapers from coast to coast. So Vancouver Sun to the Montreal Gazette. So we did uh, everything from startup companion apps in the SaaS space. Um, you know, game of gamified apps, health apps, we've done, we've done it all. So that's, that's sort of how I got my, got my start. So this is a sales podcast. Um, maybe Uh we could walk through, maybe you could give us like five things people need to know when it comes to selling SaaS, you know, reflecting on some of the mistakes you've seen people made and some of the wins that people have had. what, What are those? Yeah. So for me, um, the biggest challenge I had when I was buying SaaS, so as a customer of SaaS was just the approach you had to go through if you weren't able to buy right off the website. So I'm speaking to anybody who has a SaaS company that has enterprise pricing or custom pricing or doesn't list pricing on their website at all. Yes. So, and if you don't do that, then you know you have an inside sales team. And if you've got an inside sales team, then what I've seen, it usually goes something like this. Like you get on a call with a, uh, SDR or BDR, you get, you know, some light qualification done. Usually a demo is set up with an account executive. You know, you get on a call with an account exec, you go through a whole process of being qualified again. Uh, you get taken through a demo, which is really valuable because you need to figure out if, if, you know, the solution's a fit for you and all that kind of stuff. And at the end of it, um, you'll end up with some pricing and an offer, you know, that, that the sales reps put together. And this is where I this is where I thought everything was broken, right? This is where I thought things started to break. Was that I would I would receive an email literally with a block of text in it or a recycled PDF that had basically one option in it. It's like, here's what we talked about, here's the price. And I would always have questions. I would always go, hey, like, what else should I, you know, what what about this thing? Or what if I wanted to add 50 more users or, you know, any of those kinds of questions, I would have to go back and forth with the sales rep. So I didn't understand why when we had this great self-serve option set up on the website that I would get put into this, what felt like a bit of an archaic, you know, tooth pulling kind of approach to sales. Um, so I, I would say one of the biggest things I learned um, around that was to give people choice um, and make sure even though as salespeople, we know that we should understand our customers inside and out and we should know what the best package is for them. But that doesn't mean that there isn't still questions. So I always say, like, give people choice. And so that was, that was a big thing for me was uh, making sure people have a choice. People want to choose their own destiny. You know, they want, to, they want to feel like they're participating in that pricing conversation, especially. Um, and considering today, um, you know, people's buying decisions are almost always based on trust. If you can open up your sales process and in your pricing and things like that to your prospects, that's just going to do that's just going to do that. It's going to build that trust. And I think that's really, really important. So that was the big one for me. Um, I'd say some others are, yeah, what's the second uh, one? So yeah, secondly, I would say is around, uh, proposals (laughs) in, in particular, um, you know, you know, sometimes they're a necessary evil, but I think you can get a lot of information across without really heavy proposal processes. Um, and I think, I think that's really, really important um, for especially high-velocity sales teams. You know, when, they're, when they have to move really quickly uh, and they're pushing out, you know, say they're selling, I don't know, 
uh, 6K ACV or, you know, in around there, you know, you've got to move pretty quickly and you've got to close those deals pretty quickly. So if you're spending, you know, a few hours on every single proposal, that's a bunch of time that I would say is probably not, uh, I found at least in my very first company, we would spend hours and hours and hours writing proposals. And what I found out by, you know, using like some page management software to watch what people were actually looking at is they would look at the front page. They might read a few, a little bit of the executive overview. They would jump to pricing. Uh, and then they would, if they were really interested, they would jump to the terms of service or our, our actual contract language. So, you know, I feel like short circuiting that as much as you can, you know, making sure you get as much information out f- up front as possible uh, with your prospects, I think will save a lot of time in that proposal process. That's interesting. It seems like they've already, they had already made the decision they wanted to buy it. Or didn't. <laughs> or, or didn't want to. Ah, but, but the thing is, they were looking at the terms of service because yeah, that's, that's, something the, that's something legal is going to be asking them about. Yeah. And they're yeah. also looking at price because that's something that purchasing is going to be asking or their, or their bosses are going to be ask, looking at in regards to the budget. So it yeah, se- seems sure. like you'd, got, you'd, you'd jump through a few hump, hoops successfully, but now he's with the yeah, last I couple. Think, yeah, and I think that what that comes down to um, you know, is probably the other piece, which people have – I mean you, you see it on every you know, piece that's written about SaaS sales. But you know, discovery is so important and listening to your prospect is really important. And if you can't deliver them the value, tr- do not try and sell it to them. Like if, you, if your product is not going to solve their problems, like don't sell it to them. You're just wasting their time and yours. Um, I think that's one of the biggest pieces that I took away from it is I used to say no an awful lot and it felt really weird at the beginning. Um, but I would get on calls with prospects and they would, um, you know, they'd want to, you know, something we didn't really offer and it wasn't really our ICP, like wasn't our ideal customer profile. And we just couldn't, you know, it was kind of a round peg in a square hole. Their use case wasn't quite right. So they might've been able to get a little bit of value out of it, but in the long run, it wasn't going to work. So, um, we used to say no an awful lot. Okay. What's the third one? Well, number three, I think, is you know having the courage to say no. Like, I think that's the third. That's the third point for me. How do you feel about that? Like, what's your take on that? You know, some customers um, are just never going to be happy, and right. and I think in the world of social media, it's pretty. You don't want to get a bad name because people will start tweeting you poorly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, right. I I mean, I myself have said a few things, harsh tweets, very, very rarely on, on Twitter, you know, and I'll be darned if, you know, customer support is on me immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not what you want. Second thing is, is hopefully if you do it right, they're going to come back and buy more and more from you. So if right. it doesn't look like from the get-go, they're, they're not a good match. It, yeah, it, like it, why? Yeah. You're just making it harder. Like, yeah, I guess that's the, the other one for me is like, don't make it harder on your customer success team, right? Like, ah. you know, Fighting yeah. for that renewal, like every year, is going to be ten times worse if they're not getting value, right? Um, I read something recently that talked about, um, you know, should you fire a SaaS customer who hasn't used your product? Uh, you know, they've signed up and they've paid for like an annual. You know, should you should you not renew them? And the advice was a bit counterintuitive, and I think it was really applicable to enterprise. But basically, they said, well, if it's big enterprise, then yes, absolutely renew them because maybe their plans got delayed or they didn't roll it out or that kind of thing. But I think in general, like if you're if you're a 6K ACV piece of software and you've sold it to somebody that haven't used it in a year, a couple things are a couple things are going wrong there. One, uh, you're not you're not reaching out to them and trying to engage them. Um, and if you are reaching out and trying to engage them, and they still haven't. Uh, use your software, then maybe, maybe you don't renew them or you, you give them an opt out. Um, 
but the other one is is that you know you know the renewal process itself is going to be so much harder if they're if they're not actually getting value out of it so um, as salespeople, our job isn't to sell it is to give our customers value and if we can give our customers value then it's going to they're going to be happy. Our teams are going to be happy. You know, our product's going to grow. Our team is going to grow. Our revenues are going to grow. I mean, it's much easier to make money from an existing customer than it is to go get a new one. So as salespeople, I want the best customers we can get. And I think that's, that's one of the biggest uh, takeaways for me um, in selling SaaS. Well, I'm really glad you said this because this comes to the fourth thing I want to talk about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Compensation. Ah, Yes. So comp plans. Um, They're different. They're different with with SaaS than they are Mm -hmm. with products and, you know, services is different. Yeah, absolutely. And I I find this one, this is a pretty difficult subject because um, I was, was, you know, toying around with this idea, not toying around, but reading about this idea of, you know, when, you know, just in a straight up comp plan, do you compensate uh, your salespeople on a monthly basis for a monthly product? Or do you... You know, if it's paid monthly but contracted annually, do you give them the commission up front? Like, how do you approach that? You know, all those types of things. And, you know, if if you want to keep good salespeople around, then they need to see the upside. And if that upside is trickling in, you know, it's it's really tough for them, I think. Um, so, yeah, I think comp plans are really, really uh, staggeringly hard in SaaS, or at least they are for me. Um, I would imagine others have... Uh, different experiences, but I think, you know, good solid bases and at least as much upside in the base, um, you know, as the base going forward is, is the only way to do it really. Um, and then, you know, BDRs, do you compensate them on squos? Do you compliment, you know, do you, do you compensate them on the deal? Like, you know, where does that all leave you? Um, so I think those are all really tough questions. I don't have a silver bullet for that. Um, so I was getting ready to ask you, what, what, what do you think is the right proportion of, of, of base and commission for, for salespeople? Um, well, I mean, the ones I've experimented with have been um, almost like 1.5 times base. Um, I'm sure there's others that are much higher than that, but that's, that's sort of what we've experimented with. Um, and I think that's... Uh, I think that's pretty solid. Um, it gives them a, you know, it gives them something to, and the bases have to be reasonable, right? I mean, um, you know, people got to live, uh, and especially in SaaS. And I think it depends on the maturity of the company too. You know, if you're entering the, you know, if you're a BDR and you're entering a pretty mature company, then I wouldn't, you know, I would expect you're going to be doing lots of cold outreach for a long time and you're, you know, you're going to get paid on squos and that's how you're going to get paid. Your upside is going to be, um, proportional to that. But if you're in a brand new company and you are saddled with probably with like landing the first, you know, 20 customers or more, um, you know, your upside has to be pretty significant. So I think it really depends on the, on the company. What's, and a, the size of the company. What's a squo? Oh, sorry. Sales, sales qualified opportunity. So, you know, you've qualified them. Okay. Yeah. Hand, hand them over to your AE, that kind of thing. You know, are you getting paid for booked meetings or are you getting paid for the deal? Yeah. So what is your experience there? Like what, what, what's your, like you've run sales teams for a long time. Like what, what's 50, uh, what, 50. Yeah. Yeah. 50, so like 50. a base. Yeah. 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 So let's say we're paying someone a hundred thousand dollars a year, $50,000 yep. base, $50,000 commission. And then yep. if, you know, at, at target with the, with the mm-hmm. hope, with the hope that they go above target. Um, but going above target has a lot Sometimes has very little to do with what the poor person is. Sometimes it has to do with the market. Sometimes it's doing the, right. the, the product, the maturity, or the immaturity of it, 
or, mm-hmm. you know, where it is on the adoption curve and, and what worked last year doesn't necessarily work next year. And yeah, 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 yeah. But, and if you, I mean, I've experimented with uh, applying accelerators, you know, yes, you yes. Know, after OTE. Done you that. Know, and that's, yep. I believe in that. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's, it seems to work really well. Like, I think that's a, that's a no brainer. Like if you can really ramp the upside for them after they hit, you know, their OTE, then, uh, that's been pretty interesting. Although I've had a guy here on Sales Babble who was all about um, no quotas. Oh, really? And you treat them just like you would support people, you know, which, which requires more management. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of the whole idea of the commissions is I don't need to manage them very hard. You know, the money, right. the money will make it happen. Right. But that doesn't work with hardly any other profession, you know, nurses, firemen. You know, right. you know, firefighters don't get paid on how many fires they put out. <laughs> yeah, and if, and if they do get paid for, you know, for every fire they put out, that's a dangerous thing too, right? <laughs> yes, right, right. So, so why are, so his notion is, 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 is his theme is, his, is, uh, why do we treat salespeople different? Aren't they like humans just like everybody else? Like, right, it's right. Inter- it's an well, interesting thought experiment. Yeah, the motivations are different, right? Like, um, uh, you know, I think that's really interesting. I, I've seen um, another company I know uh, here in Canada that's experimenting with the idea of commission gets paid to everybody on the team, including the product teams. Now, I don't know how that structure breaks down, but that's mm. the model taking, and they did it for a year, and I guess it's still working, so they're they're continuing to do it. Um, so, you know, salespeople sell it, the whole team gets a, a bump, you know, um, I guess it just drives motivation across the entire team. Um, but yeah, that's something I hadn't seen before. Hmm. I think that's how kind of old fashioned bonuses work, right? Depending upon the, right. the profitability of the company, you know, at Christmas, you get a bonus, just like a Christmas vacation. So you can put your swimming pool in. You know, yeah. So. Profit sharing. And I, I think the big challenge with profit sharing and things like that is that it's really tough to know what lever you can pull depending on where you work in the organization to increase the profitability of a company. None. I've been there as an engineer. Right. I was in that space. Right? <laughs> it was meaningless yeah. to me. It was yeah, me- <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and I've had that same experience. It's like you know, I've had I've had uh, you know fellow software developers that now work for me come to me and say like, you know, what can I do to make us more profitable? And I'm I'm even at a loss. I mean, other than you know, build the best software you can and make it as high quality as you can. You know, that's that's about it, right? It's it's yeah. it's a tough it's a tough one. Okay, one more number five. I would say around, you know, this idea, you know, where we're talking about value all the time and being able to surface value Yep, uh, is around really good follow-ups. And I know like follow-ups are kind of like, you know, sometimes a dirty word, but they're, they're the absolute necessity of what we do, right? Like we have to be top of mind, but there's a difference between top of mind and actually understanding uh, what it is your prospect wants and actually speaking, you know, to them about that. And I think that's a, that's a big one. So I've, I've been on the other end of receiving the emails basically saying, hey, just following up, did you check out that proposal? You know, which is highly, you know, I guess we have to do it, but it seems pretty low value to me, you know, um, and just like someone's going through the list and trying to churn through it. Um, but if there's ways that you can figure out, you know, what it is that they were the most interested in or if there's other mechanisms you have in place between the time you've spoken to them last and the time you talk to them now um, about something that's actually, you know, crucial to their buying decision, try and surface it. And I think that's been a big help. Every time we've been able to, you know, come back to our 
uh, customers and say, Hey, like I noticed that you were really digging into this section of, uh, the onboarding and the training, and this is really important to you. Like, let's talk about that. How can we make that part of the package so that it's not so, you know, maybe it's not so expensive or maybe it's just easier to onboard or, you know, something like that. So timely follow-ups that are actually about what people are, are, uh, concerned about, I think is actually, uh, really important. And I know it sounds, I mean, it sounds a little bit. Oh, no, no. I think, I think you're right. Um, my follow-ups are always something along the lines like, I, I may have forgotten something. Um, I know, have you had a chance to look at the proposal? Did I forget anything? Right. Any, yeah, I might say that. And then like two weeks, I might say, is there anything else that you needed? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, those are, those are the, the big things. Or if there's something that you knew they were interested in, like you and I were talking before the show, you know, you used to big into, big into cycling, I'm into running, like make it a personal note. Like, hey, you know, I saw this the blue nose marathon, which is happens here in Halifax every year is, is happening. Are you, are you going in? Like, you know, like even if it's a personal note, just checking in, like sometimes that's more valuable than it's, it's certainly to me way better than, Hey, did you check out that proposal? Um, you know, you know, I feel like that guy from the Simpsons selling the monorail, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Yes. you know, know? Oh, that's more of a, you know, whatever town over idea, you know, it's like, no, 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 you just tell us your idea. We'll buy, you know, like it's, it's never that easy. And of course we don't want to be that, that, uh, that used car salesman just constantly hammering them with it. Right. Got to add value. Yeah. What's it going to take for you to drive this car off the lot tonight? Yeah, exactly. And you know, sometimes, I mean, actually that's another question. That's another great one. Like ask for the close. Like this is a common thing that we talk about in sales all the time. And it's amazing how many people do not ask for the close. So I think it's important to ask for it, but you have to ask for it at the right time. And if they're not ready, then you need to figure out why, you know, you need to figure out, you know, what those objections are. Cause if you figured out that they've got value out of your, they're going to get value out of the solution, you know, what is, is it a pricing objection? If it's a pricing objection, you haven't done a good job of showing the value of why it's worth what you're charging for, you know, like all of those types of things. So I think that's probably another big one I think is, you know, asking for the close and learning from that response, um, I think is a big one. Uh, for a lot of salespeople. Five plus one. That's six. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, how can people find you online? Uh, you can check us out at salesright.co. Salesright. Um, yeah. Yep. S-A-L-E-S-R-I-G-H-T dot co. Right. And uh, we have lots of free sales resources on the site, uh, including a pricing page collection, which we analyze uh, the trends in pricing from the top 100 SaaS companies uh, from the SaaS 1000. So we've got all of the screenshots of all of their pricing pages, along with um, some metadata about each. So you can go through and filter by things like, do they have an enterprise tier? Do they have social proof? Do they have chat? You know, things like that and see what the trends are. And also we have a big report about um, some of the data that we collected about pricing pages and, um, you know, the impacts that they're having for those those companies. At least you can see how the top 100 SaaS companies cool. are doing it. Cool, yeah. cool, cool. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, Bill, I really appreciate you visiting us here on Sales Babble and babbling with us about SaaS. This is a topic near and dear to my heart. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much for having me on, Pat. I can really identify with all the things that Bill shared today because I believe it's all about keeping clients for life. Right, The four things that I always like to focus on are renewals, references, referrals, and, of course, the upsell. If you treat your clients right, they're going to stick with you for a long, long time. 
So to connect with Bill, you can find him and his company in the show notes at www.salesbabble.com slash 283. And I'd like to take a second to remind people that one of the best ways that people hear about Sales Babble is on our listener reviews. If you could go to your favorite podcast app and leave a five-star comment, hey, I would deeply appreciate it because word of mouth is how podcasts spread. In fact, I got a quote here from uh, Loud House number five. Gave us a five-star review. He says, really enjoy this podcast. I find that the topics are always relevant and the guests interesting. This is one of the podcasts that I consistently enjoy every week. Thank you, Loud House. Really appreciate it. We're almost done, but as I promised, I have something I'd like to share with you that was slightly mentioned in the episode by Bill Bart Simpson Springfield purchasing a monorail. Until next week, take care and have a highly successful and profitable selling day. You know, a town with money is a little like the mule with a spinning wheel. No one knows how he got it, and danged if he knows how to use it. (laughs) (laughs) Mule. The name's Lanley, Lyle Lanley. And I come before you good people tonight with an idea. Probably the greatest... Oh, it's not for you. It's more of a Shelbyville idea. Now, wait just a minute. We're twice as smart as the people of Shelbyville. Just tell us your idea and we'll vote for it. All right. I tell you what I'll do. I'll show you my idea. I give you the Springfield monorail. (gasps) I've sold monorails to Brockway, Ogdenville, and North Haverbrook. And by gum, it put them on the map. Well, sir, there's nothing on earth like a genuine, bona fide, electrified six-car monorail. what I say? Monorail. What's it called? Monorail. That's right, monorail. Monorail. Thank you for listening to the Sales Babble Podcast. Find us at www.salesbabble.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.